Hello, and welcome to The Wise and the Wicked. My name is KJ. Today, we are having a look at a problem solver. We are looking at the incredible Malala Yousafzai. Now, I already actually knew a good bit about this story beforehand, and I actually read her book. Um, she is a hero and inspiration to a loved one of mine. So I still feel though that this story is both fascinating and vital for listening. It is a story of love, loss, fear, and the incredible fight of a child for her education. Before we jump in, just my normal couple of notes. There is some pronunciation here that I did my very best with. Please be kind. And there is some, not a huge amount, but there is some details of violence in this story. So please use your discretion. Let's get cracking. started this podcast as a means to educate myself and whoever fancies listening about different types of people and their impact on society. This means that we look at all things crime, history, the problematic ones and the problem solvers. This story begins in a town called Mingora in a gorgeous place called Swat Valley. Commonly known as the Switzerland of Pakistan, Swat is a stunning valley in the north of the country. It is known for its snow-capped mountains, spectacular natural beauty, clear blue springs, lush green meadows. It's absolutely breathtaking. Swat was a very popular tourist destination and it lies about 250 kilometers north of the country's capital of Islamabad. So within this region, about 90% of the population, including our leading lady and her family, are Pashtun. So Pashtun is an ethnic group primarily residing in Afghanistan and northwestern Pakistan. Throughout Malala's autobiography, which we will be referencing a good bit, um, she speaks a lot about what it means to her to be Pashtun and how they are a very proud people. Malala explains how first, like most Pashtuns, she would consider herself first and foremost as Pashtun, then Swati, and then as a Pakistani. And although Urdu is the national language of Pakistan, there are many, many languages spoken throughout this massive country. Pashto is the main language that's spoken within the Swat Valley, but it is common for Pakistanis to have more than one language. So, for example, by the age of 12, Malala was fluent in Pashto, Urdu and English. Malala and her family are fiercely close. She consistently speaks highly of them throughout all of her public speeches, and they can be seen cheering her on in the audience every time. Malala's parents, Zuaidin and Torpeki, are both from Swat Valley. So her mother, Torpeki, came from a long line of very strong women and very intelligent men. At the start of this story, Torpeki could not read or write as she was not given the opportunity to go to school as a child. She was very, very bright. Malala's father, Zuaidin, is a very strong character in this story, so he will be coming up a lot. Um, 
Zuedin comes from a family where he is the only son and he has five sisters. So just want to speak more about Zuedin himself just to give a little bit of context about the type of person that he is. So in various talks and interviews that Zuedin has been in, he speaks very openly about the issues of the patriarchal society that he was born and raised in. He discusses how when he was young, he just kind of accepted the ideals of the patriarchy that was surrounding him when he was very, very young. He said, quote, in my early childhood, for some years, like all brothers and men in the patriarchy, I accepted the situation for women like my mother and sisters. I was a blue-eyed boy in, of my family. If I had been a sixth daughter to my parents, or if I had been one of my five sisters, the world would not have heard of me. Not even the world at large, but my own community. So once Zuedin got a little bit older, he became more aware of the discrimination that was around him. He began to question his surroundings. Why weren't his sisters going to school? And why was he treated a little bit differently? He explains how this meant in his eyes that his sisters had no life, no social life, no social aspirations. He says, quote, The only dream parents had for girls was the earlier they got married, the better. He explains that in his opinion, these social constructs made him very, very conscious and he realized that they were anti-development and anti-rights for girls. From a very early age, Zuedin had a stammer, making him a very easy target for bullying when he was in school. This would have a profound effect on his view of the world and more specifically his resistance to injustice and discrimination. He claims, quote, I became very conscious of these discriminations and one of the worst was the boys and the girls. That is why it became my mission in life that I will fight for women's rights and for girls' education, for women's empowerment. Once he finished school, Zuedin would go on to become a teacher. He saw education as the most important and effective tool that he had to fight injustices and empower the people in his community. Therefore, by becoming a teacher, he could help the children in his own home to be empowered too. He wanted to help his students and encourage them to fight for women's rights as well. So he thought first within the public school system for a while, and then ultimately he decided he wanted to set up his own school. And this would allow him more freedom to practice the vision that he had. He explains his mission as, I used education for emancipation. I taught my girl students to unlearn the lesson of obedience. I taught my boy students to unlearn the so-called honor. So Adin would take the same principles into his family life and into his parenting style. When he first started the school in Mangora in Swat Valley, he had three students and about 15,000 rupees, which is about £100 at the time. Just a few years later, Zuedin would have 1,100 students at his school. So the story of how Zuedin and Torpeki met is a unique and a very lovely one. Um, Malala explains that in their culture, arranged marriages are very commonplace and love matches are very rare. So these two grew up in neighboring villages within the Swat Valley. While they were young, they used to pass each other on the street while Torpeki would be going to visit her aunt who lived in the house next door to Zodin and his family where they were living at the time. So they would pass each other frequently and they would catch each other's eye. They both knew what the other person was thinking and they both knew that they kind of liked each other. But by discussing such things or expressing these feelings was completely taboo. It just simply was not done. 
But in order to get around this, Zuedin actually decided to write little poems for Tokeki and leave them for her. Unfortunately, as we mentioned, due to her lack of education, Tokeki could not read these, but I think she generally knew what he was getting at anyway. Their main issue was that their fathers did not get along at all, and therefore an arrangement of their marriage was highly unlikely. So when Zuedin first expressed his desire to marry Torpeki to her father, he refused. However, this did not stop our very persistent Zuedin from asking more. It took nine months before Torpeki's father agreed for his daughter to marry Zuedin. Their relationship and their marriage was also unique for the time and the culture. So Malala states how Zuedin would share everything with his wife. He would talk to her about business and he would ask her for her advice about all aspects of life. She would say that when Zuedin came home from work in the evenings, he would tell his wife absolutely everything that happened during the day. Now you'll have to understand that culturally speaking and for the time and the area, this was not a common thing this was very, very rare, but this just shows how unique and special their relationship is. So in July 1997, they would welcome the birth of their daughter Malala. And just a few years that followed, Zuedin and Torpeki would welcome two more children, both boys, Kushal and Atal. As we mentioned before, Zuedin and Torpeki wanted to ensure their children would be educated. They wanted to help their children in every way they could. At the age of four, Malala would start school and she would have gone to the school that her father founded. For the first six years of school, Malala had a great experience. She learned a huge amount, she was a great student, she had many, many friends and she had a very, very happy time. When Malala was just 10 years old in 2007, there was the first sight of the Taliban in Swat Valley. At the time, Malala and her friend Maliba were reading the Twilight books. Much like a lot of us in 2007, they would talk about which vampires they liked, which they didn't like, and they generally bonded over their love for the books. Malala at this time thought that the Taliban resembled the vampires that she was reading about because they wore black turbans. And she also said they reminded her of the vampires because they came in the night. So the man at the helm of the Taliban in this area at this time was Mulana Fazlullah. At this time, Fazula came with the claim to reform the Quran. He was first wanted to encourage people to look after their health better. So to eat better, not take drugs, give up cigarettes, etc. In time, this became more and more extreme. Instead of advising, he began insisting. First insisting that women should remain in the home. Fazullah continued his insistence and he would use the local radio stations to broadcast his beliefs. Later, he would call for beauty parlors and barbers to be closed down throughout Swat Valley. He would forbid women to walk outside in the evenings alone, and he called for all women to wear a burqa all the time. So, Zuddin did not enforce any of these ideals at his school. He would actually do the opposite, and he would encourage people to speak out against the Taliban, and he would argue that they were misinterpreting the Quran. So the Taliban actually went on to destroy a very, very famous Buddhist statue that had been standing in Swat Valley for centuries. Some sources actually said that it had been there since the seventh century. Malala explains how first the Taliban took our music, then our Buddhas, then our history. 
The Taliban considered education for girls to be against the Quran, and therefore they would attempt to ban this as well. So Malala explains that at this time, her country was in chaos and she felt really unsafe in her own town. She grew increasingly uncomfortable and she was really uncomfortable to wear her school uniform as this was a sign that she was being educated and thus going against the Taliban and ultimately, in the eyes of the Taliban, dishonouring Allah. Over the coming months and coming into 2008, this rhetoric became more and more extreme. The Taliban started bombing schools for girls across the country. Fear grew as bombs were getting closer and closer. It was later learned that a suicide bomber set off the explosion, which would blow up a portion of the local girls' school. In response to the escalating violence, Zuadine would join a group of elders who wanted to challenge Fazullah's views and his interpretation of the Quran. Zuadine soon became the spokesperson of this group, and over the course of a few months, Zuadine would make many speeches and he would speak very openly and very publicly against Fazullah and his ideals. He would accuse him of destroying the culture and the lives of those in the area. So Zuadine became very well known as a public figure and a brave man for standing up for the oppressed. Around this time, he had organized a peace march, which most of the students in his school were included in. And during this march, the local TV station came to interview some of the students who were participating. And Malala was, of course, participating and she would be interviewed during this march. She would be recorded saying, how dare the Taliban take away my basic right for education? Later, this clip of Malala would circulate on all stations around Pakistan. So you have to understand how controversial this was at the time. The Taliban were generating such huge amounts of fear. To speak out so publicly against them on national TV was very, very contentious. By the end of 2008, the Taliban had bombed almost 400 girls' schools across Pakistan. In late 2008, there was an announcement that all schools for girls within the Swat Valley would have to close. This included Zuadin's school. The Taliban announced that there would be punishment for any woman or girl going to school after January 15, 2009. As they entered into 2009, violence in Swat became more and more intense. Zuadin received a call from an old friend around this time who was actually a BBC news reporter. This reporter was looking to interview a young girl within the local area to write about her experience under the Taliban. Malala, of course, volunteered herself for this job and she would write under a pseudonym, Gul Makai, which means cornflower, for her own safety. So on the 3rd of January 2009, at just 12 years old, Malala wrote her first BBC Urdu diary entry and it wrote, I am afraid. I had a terrible dream yesterday with military helicopters and the Taliban. I have had such dreams since the launch of the military operation in SWAT. My mother made me breakfast and I went off to school. I was afraid going to school because the Taliban had issued an edict banning all girls from attending schools. Only 11 students attended a class out of 27. The number decreased because of the Taliban's edict. My three friends have shifted to Peshawar, Lahore and Rawalpindi with their families after this edict. On my way home from school, I heard a man saying, I will kill you. I hastened my pace and after a while I looked back to see if the man was coming behind me. To my utter relief, he was talking on his mobile and he must have been threatening the life of someone else over the phone. 
The new ban on schools was to come into power on the 15th of January of that year. So on Wednesday, the 14th of January 2009, Malala would write in her BBC diary again. This day she wrote, I may not go to school again. I was in a bad mood while going to school because winter vacations are starting tomorrow. The principal announced the vacations but did not mention the date that the schools were to reopen. This was the first time this happened. In the past, the reopening date was always announced clearly. The principal did not inform us about the reason behind not announcing the school's reopening, but my guess was that the Taliban had announced a ban on girls' education from the 15th January. This time around, the girls were not too excited about vacations because they knew if the Taliban implemented their edict, they would not be able to come to school again. Some girls were optimistic that the schools would reopen in February, but others said their parents had decided to shift from SWAT and to go to other cities for the sake of their education. Since today was the last day of our school, we decided to play in the playground a little bit longer. I am of the view that the school will one day reopen, but while leaving, I look at the building as if I would not come here again. So in February of that year, the schools in SWAT did reopen after their winter break, but it was only open for boys. Malala's brothers at this time were allowed to attend the school and she was not. As you can imagine, she was furious. Across Pakistan, there were mass criticism for Fazlullah's banning of women's education. He agrees to lift this ban as a result for girls who are younger than 10. Malala and some of her classmates at this time would decide to return to school and they would do this while they pretended that they were younger than 10. So in May 2009, the Pakistani army came to SWAT in an effort to drive the Taliban away. There is violence and gunfire at this time all throughout Mingora. The area was far too dangerous to be in and Zuedin would make the very, very difficult decision to move his family out of Mingora to Shangla. So Shangla is about 50 kilometers distance from Mingora, but they, uh, which at the time seemed like a million miles away because of how dangerous everywhere was. But they had some family living there and they knew that they could be safe there. So of course, Malala and her family are absolutely heartbroken having to leave their beloved Mingora, but they had to keep themselves safe. As soon as they got there, they tried their best to settle in and Malala and her brothers would attend the local school. They did know, however, that they were not completely safe as it was rumored that the Taliban would likely come to Shangla next. So after three months of living in the Shangla region, the family hear that the Prime Minister of Pakistan at the time, so it was Yusuf Raza Galani, he announced that the Taliban have been completely cleared out of Mingora and it is safe again. So the family can return to their beloved home. When they arrive back to their town, it is in ruin. However, Malala and her brothers were happy to return back to school in 2009, happy to see their classmates again. All the while, their family would begin the arduous task of rebuilding their lives. So the following year, in 2010, the annual monsoon rains came and this time they brought a whole new problem. In July and August of that year, the relentless rain would cause floods that would bring complete and utter devastation to Swat Valley. The river Indus burst and caused incredible damage to the area. It is estimated that almost 1,700 people were killed as a result of these floods and 20 million people were affected with property damage and loss of farming land. 
These rains would also wash away the cloak that was hiding a secret. There were some secret groups that still held loyalty to the Taliban in the area, and they still believed in the Taliban's ideals. The vulnerable state that the area was left in as a result of the floods left a perfect opportunity for these that are loyal to the Taliban to assert their influence once again. In October of the following year, in 2011, Malala was nominated for the Kids' Rights Award in Amsterdam. Despite not winning this award on this particular occasion, it granted her an invitation to speak at an educational gala that was being held in Lahore. Here, Malala would deliver a moving and impassioned speech on the importance of education, and this speech granted her the Pakistan's first national youth peace prize. So this was a very, very impressive award, as you can imagine. But this award also came with additional rewards as she got to meet the prime minister, and she would also receive about half a million rupees. So Malala would take the opportunity to meet the Prime Minister as a chance to give him a list of her requests. These requests included a university for women in Swat and the rebuilding of the schools that were damaged by the bombings over the years prior. The money that Malala would receive from this award was used to rebuild schools in Swat. And additionally, with this money, she would go on to create a foundation, ultimately having the goal to give free education to homeless children in her native Swat Valley. Following this great success, Malala was invited to Karachi. Karachi is one of Pakistan's largest cities and economic hub. And here Malala would appear on TV. So there was a school in Abbottabad which had been named in her honour and they wanted to interview her in Karachi to talk about this on national TV. And this trip would be the first time that Malala would travel by plane and she was really excited and she was even more excited to go to this major, major city. However, this excitement would soon dissipate as during one of the interviews, Malala was informed by a very tearful reporter that the Taliban had made public threats to her safety demanding her to immediately stop her campaign. Zuedin would ask his daughter to stop her activism for the time being so that she can remain safe. But Malala, sticking to her character, refused, stating that she is committed to her cause now and nothing is going to stop her. So skipping to a year later, on the 9th of October 2012, this day would start like any other day except for there was great expectations as Malala was in the midst of her school exams. Although the journey to school was walking distance, Malala and her friends had decided to start taking the bus as this would be a lot safer than walking. She would always sit next to her friend Moniba, who we briefly spoke about earlier. The two were inseparable from a very, very young age and they would share everything their love for Justin Bieber, their love for the Twilight movies, and their favorite face lightening creams. Moniba at this time had expressed to Malala that she was very worried about her and the threats that she'd been getting from the Taliban. And Malala told her, don't worry, the Taliban had never come for a small girl. After the school day ended, the girls went from class and waited for their school bus. They would quickly walk from the school to the bus with their heads covered as normal. The small Toyota bus was cramped with both students and teachers. Malala sat on the bus patiently beside Moniba and another girl from their school, Shazia. The bus was hot and sticky, but the drive was short. So the bus took its usual route, which was normally to pass through an army checkpoint as normal. 
but instead, today, it was stopped about 200 metres before the checkpoint. They were stopped by a young man who boarded the bus to ask the driver some questions. So he wanted information about one of the students on board. The driver told him that he couldn't tell him anything and if he wanted some information about one of the students, he'd have to go directly to the school's office and ask there. Meanwhile, this conversation was going on, they spotted another man at the back of the bus. So Moniba had suggested to Malala that maybe it was somebody looking to interview her, which had happened quite recently, which had happened quite regularly recently. The man was very young and Malala remembers thinking he looked like a college student as he was wearing a cap. Suddenly, this young man would swing open the door and shout, Who is Malala? The bus was silent, but a few scared children looked over at Malala, not knowing what to do. She was the only one on the bus not wearing a burqa. The young man in the cap lifted up his black Colt 45 and shot. The children screamed and Malala squeezed Moniba's hand. Malala would explain later. My friends say he fired three shots, one after another. The first went through my left eye socket and out under my left shoulder. I slumped forwards onto Moniba, blood coming from my left ear. So the other two bullets hit the girls next to me. One bullet went into Shazia's left hand and the third went through her left shoulder and into the upper right arm of Kinat Riaz. My friends would tell me later that the gunman's hand was shaking while he shot. The bus driver drove as quickly as he could to Swat Central Hospital. Malala and the girls' families were informed and they rushed to the hospital as fast as possible. Malala had lost a lot of blood and she had also lost consciousness, but miraculously, she was alive. She had survived being shot in her eye. The bullet had just slightly missed her brain, but the doctors were concerned as fragments of her skull may have been lodged into her brain. As a result of her injuries, Malala required extensive surgery. The surgery, although initially successful, caused Malala's health to deteriorate. She developed a condition called DIC, which is Dissemented Intravascular Coagulation, which is a fancy way of saying her blood wasn't circulating around her body as it should be, which would cause her kidneys to go into distress and they actually started to fail. She was moved at this time to a bigger hospital in Rawalpindi, and this was an army hospital and it was guarded day and night by Pakistani soldiers. So although another attack from the Taliban is improbable, of course these things are not impossible, she would be safe here. Malala's doctors explained that as a result of her injuries to her brain, the right side of her body would be weak and she may have a speech impediment. Doctors recommended recovery would be best overseas. So while her recovery was going on, politicians all over the world were taking notice of the tale of this incredible young girl. So the US president at the time, Barack Obama, and the UN Secretary General at the time, Ban Ki-moon, condemned the attack on Malala. Malala's doctor would recommend that she would go to Birmingham in England to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which was another military hospital in England that specialised in gunshot wounds. However, they faced a problem. How were they going to pay for this? After much debate, the government of the United Arab Emirates paid for the journey for Malala and her father to go to Birmingham. However, they could only pay for Malala and her father and not the family. It would actually take another 10 days for the rest of the family to be able to join them. 
The Pakistani government at this time paid for Malala's treatment in Birmingham. Malala's recovery was slow but steady. She slowly regained her speech to some degree and she had very limited control over half her face and her right arm and right leg. On 11th of November of that year, Malala underwent crucial surgery which helped her paralyzed face and would help her to gain motor control back. In the following few months, she did some rehabilitation for her arm and her legs and this was a great success. So Malala and her family began to settle into their new life in Birmingham. The children attended school and life continued in its new normality. They all desperately missed their life and their home in their beloved Swat Valley, but they tried their very best to settle where they were. While their lives continued in England, the situation in Pakistan continued to deteriorate. Malala states that although she and her family suffered massively, the Taliban have helped her in a very strange way to make her mission more global. The book that she would go on to write concludes with her stating that she has come so far, but her mission is still not complete. The book that she would go on to write concludes with her stating that she has come so far, but her mission is still not complete. So this book was written in 2014, but if you watch interviews that are more recent of Malala up as far as nine months ago, which would be late 2022, she is still campaigning for the right for education for girls in Pakistan and around the globe. At the moment, it is currently estimated that 120 million girls across the world were not in school today. The release of Malala's book and continued activism were still not the end of her achievements. In 2014, Malala became the youngest person in history to receive the Nobel Peace Prize at the age of 17. And true to her amazing character, Malala's reaction to winning the Nobel Peace Prize was nothing short of iconic. Sitting in a classroom in Birmingham, her class was interrupted by a teacher who informed her that the press were outside and they wanted to speak to her because she had just won the Nobel Peace Prize. Her response? They will have to wait. Her day was not finished yet. After all of her struggles for her right to go to school, nothing was going to drag her away from class now. Absolutely nothing. Fucking legend. Although she is an absolute icon, her Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech was extremely humble and compassionate. During her speech, she speaks of her mission to give free education across the globe. Malala encourages everyone listening to join her in her vision. She also thanks her loved ones and those around her. She thanks her parents as, thank you to my father for not clipping my wings and letting me fly. Thank you to my mother for teaching me to be strong and patient and to always speak the truth, which we believe strongly is the true message of Islam. Malala also explains how, I am pretty certain I am the first recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize who still fights with her younger brothers. I want there to be peace everywhere, but my brothers and I are still working on that. It's really hard to imagine how somebody of this acclaim can be so young and so humbled. And this just makes her even more impressive when we see her youth and how she discusses her family. And we get a small look into her family life and their dynamic. It's amazing to see. In later interviews, when Zidin is asked about his parenting style and the impact he had on Malala, he says, Don't ask me what I did do ask me what I didn't do. I did not clip her wings and that is all. So since 2014, Malala and Zuaidin have been working towards their goals. They have set up their foundation, the Malala Fund. 
So the Malala Fund focuses on educating girls in countries where they do not have access to education. They have done astoundingly amazing work setting up schools in countries such as Bangladesh, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Turkey and many more. It is a really interesting company to look into should you ever be interested. Malala truly believes that education is everything. One of her most famous quotes is, One child, one teacher, one book, one pen can change the world. And that, my dear friends, is the incredible story of Malala Yousafzai. Thank you so much for listening.